Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Shab Miriskandari. Dr. Shab is a counselling psychologist with over 17 years of experience and works in conjunction with many of Australia's most respected and well-known specialist surgeons. Dr. Shab has a special interest in the treatment of patients with difficulties relating to body image, health and sexuality. She holds research appointments at the University of Sydney, the University of New South Wales and Macquarie University. Dr. Shab. Yes. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks very for coming. excited to be here. I've never done I'm this. I'm very before. excited. <laughs> I've heard a lot about you. <laughs> I hope good stuff. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Shab, do you just want to introduce yourself a little bit more detail? We've run through a brief bio just before this podcast, but just explain who you are and what you do exactly. Before we go on, you didn't call me an expert on your bio, did you? Uh, no. <laughs> Good. Please don't. Okay. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, so um, I became a registered psychologist in 2001. My um, undergraduate research that led to going into postgraduate was looking at body image in uh, men specifically comparing gay men and straight men mm. who attended the gym and what they were trying to get out of their workouts and to try to identify differences between the two groups. Mm. Um, at that point, being 2001, straight men were not as into their bodies as gay men were. So we were trying to look into, I was very interested in trying to figure out why the in specifically homosexual men had such a obsession with their figure. Mm. And or was it the opposite that straight men didn't? Or straight men were lying. <laughs> <laughs> not talking I about think, myself. No. no. <laughs> I think what it is, it, what it was at the time was that it was just more prominent in the gay culture. Mm. Whether it was as prominent with straight men, we just were not aware of it, perhaps, maybe. But it became... That was quite early on, and we figured out very quickly that the gay men and straight men were going to gym for two different reasons. Mm. Um, gay men were looking for a very specific body shape, um, and straight men were looking for bulk and strength okay. and looking strong. To promote a different image about themselves. That's right, and masculinity, whereas gay men were more into a chiseled look, and they weren't into bulk as such. They were looking for a shape. Before you tell us more about your research, which sounds super interesting, yes. what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Just to yes. orientate Yes, so a psychologist um, studies science or arts and majors in psychology or studies just psychology, which yeah. there's a few universities that offer that. And you can go on to do your honours, master's and your doctorate. 
So you become a doctor something, but mm. it's actually a PhD in psychology okay. or a doctorate in psychology. So as, as in not a medical, medical doctor. doctor. So we can't prescribe. Psychiatrists, on the other hand, study medicine first, and then they, like anyone who has to do a specialty in medicine, will then go on to do a specialty in psychology, psychiatry. Mm. So they can prescribe medication. Yeah. So they're a medical doctor first, then they do that specialty, like an ear, nose and throat surgeon or a gastroenterologist. Or sure. So how long did it take you to train to be a psychologist? So to be a psychologist in Australia, um, you have to do uh, undergrad, one year of honours and three years of master's, f about over a thousand hours of one-on-one -on -one counselling to mm. register. Uh, but you can go on to do the doctorate, which is what I did, which is another three to five years on top of that. Okay. So you did all of that in Sydney? Yes. Okay. So um, now rewind back to your <laughs> research. Yes. So then um, I did my master's and I did my, um, at the end of my master's, I decided I was going to do the doctorate. And I got a scholarship at Prince of Wales Hospital to do um, research with cancer patients because I was always interested in the body and specifically breast and ovarian cancer. Again, because my research was with men, I looked at the impact of that on the partners of women with breast and ovarian cancer, mm. the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. And that led to other diseases. I did research in prostate cancer for three years. I did um, research in melanoma for three years. So I have always done that on the side, but I've always been interested in um, health psychology and the body. Okay. Right. Um, and fell into plastic surgery. Mm. Almost accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were, Completely accidentally, actually. We were talking to a um, mutual friend, Dr. Shahidi, and he yes. said, you need to talk to yourself, <laughs> which is why we, uh, well, I think he reached out on, on, on our behalf. Yes. Um, because I guess it's an area that's sort of overlooked. I mean, you know, we're talking so much about the physical changes where I think that the mental changes and the impact it can have on your psychology is, is often overlooked. So, I mean, how did you sort of fall into it? I mean, it's... A long way from where you started. Yes. So in my private practice, um, I concentrate on a, a lot on eating disorders, um, sexuality, sexual issues, and anything to do with the body, mm. as well as cancer. Um, a, a good family friend who's a very good plastic surgeon approached me um, just in a passing at a cocktail party saying it would be really lovely if I had a questionnaire to identify body dysmorphic patients so I don't operate on them. Can you please design a questionnaire for me? Can you just um, define Maybe. what that means, body dysmorphic? Yes. So I love that one of your questions for this interview was um, how do you, like, what are the criteria for body dysmorphic disorder? I think. Anyone who's looking into plastic surgery, that's the catchphrase that if we can identify people with body dysmorphic disorder, it will make our job easier. Mm. So body dysmorphic disorder is a very, very serious illness with very specific diagnostic criteria. Not that many people meet the criteria for body dysmorphic disorder. You have to be very, very unwell to meet all criteria. But the specific criteria are a preoccupation and um, distress about a a flaw, a physical flaw, that by um, objective observers would not agree is as bad as the actual person thinks. Mm. So it's a subjective experience is very distressing, but objectively it's not that obvious. Um, there might be a bit of a flaw, but it's not. it does not match the distress of the person and how distressed the person is and how bad they think the flaw is. Yeah. Um, there has to be a history of... Um, um, obsessively examining that body 
part and trying to hide it, put makeup on it, checking it in the mirror, looking for reassurance and an element of anything that they try is not satisfactory. Yeah. So there's this area of dissatisfaction about trying to hide this flaw, yeah. this imagined flaw. I'd say that most people have something about themselves that they don't like. So this is the third category so like that a, you have uh, to meet. Sliding, it's yes. not like a you either have it or you don't. Exactly. I would think that everyone has some degree of something about themselves, except you, Jake. You're I'm perfect. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Present company excluded. So um, but have, yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's what I love, <clears throat> what you just said. So the third criteria is that it has to cause the person social, emotional, um, occupational um, Distress. impairment. Mm. Yeah. So most of us will not meet all those three criterias, but I think as human beings, we're all along a spectrum of having some part of our bodies that we're not happy with and we will spend time grooming or looking for improving or asking for reassurances that it's okay. Mm -hmm. How many people have been asked, does my butt look too big in this dress? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a common what's the, thing. What's the right answer to that question, by the way? <laughs> you need a whole uh, new session. We need another, that. another, that'll be episode three. Yeah. Yes. But I think we all struggle with that. Well, you know, wh why do we get up and brush our hair and, and you know, cleanse our face and buy nice clothes because we want to look good? And That's put normal. perfume on and brush our teeth and so, shave and all the rest of it. Yeah. You know, wh at what point do people become obsessed with it? Can you pick it up early? Are there signs and symptoms when people are younger or is it they're just experiences which, you know, people bully them and make them more susceptible to becoming obsessed with it? What, what, what's the driving force behind it? So that's why I do want to be called an expert. I think we are as um, psychologists in infant stages of trying to understand all of this. And I think we need so much more work in this area to identify that. Mm. But what is very clear to thoughtful psychologists who've been looking into this, that there's internal pain and suffering that gets um, focused on a particular body part. And yes, body dysmorphic disorder is a very, very serious mental illness. It's very different to actually meet criteria for that. But I think what we are coming across in society now with injectables, with any kind of body modification that we're doing with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, we need to understand the internal pain and the meaning of what's being played at. Mm. So I think for different people, it's different. So that question of what, what does it, um, there could be so many triggers. Um, for someone, it could be sexual abuse. For someone, it could be, um, be having been overweight their whole life. For someone, it could be bullying. For someone, it could just be um, issues that they have with themselves, that they, they try to perfect the outside to hide. Yeah. or to get away from, or mm -hmm. to cope with the pain on the inside by making the outside perfect. So it could be a lot of things. So I guess getting back to the surgical intervention side of things, how would, what's the difference between someone who just wants to have something improved and then someone that's body dysmorphic? I mean, you wouldn't want to get something changed unless you had an issue with it, right? So how do you... Yes. Yeah. I think this is where the enormous responsibility comes because we are a body dysmorphic person is never going to go to a psychologist. They are convinced. Voluntarily, you mean? Yes. Yeah, okay. That because was my they're question. Convinced. Do, do you yeah. ever have people who self-refer themselves? No. 
Never. No, not that I've ever come across. Okay. So I, I've been doing this for um, nine, ten years now. This year is ten years, and I've never seen anyone refer themselves. And they also take the information very badly when they're told that they have body dysmorphia. So the people who are referred to you with BDD, can we call it? Yes, BDD? that's what it is. Um, do they accept that whatever the issue is, big ears, big nose, is such a debilitating thing for them? that whether they accept that it's objective or subjectively bad, that it's still ruining their life? Do they accept that at least? Um, so it's really interesting because to them, it's not imagined. Mm. It's completely real. Okay. And everybody else is lying to them or trying to make them feel better or they're just not being honest with them. So to them, surgery is really um, the the last place that they're looking to help them with these feelings. Mm. So to be turned away from surgery or especially by a psychologist who's not even the surgeon, um, if the doctor sends them for assessment and then I explain to them that you're not a suitable candidate for this surgery, mm. um, it's very, very distressing for them and they can often become suicidal or very depressed because wow. they were looking at this as the final solution for these feelings. Yes, Okay. So it's very distressing to them. So what you asked was in terms of how do we, it's it's about that objective measure of, does this person actually need this surgery and do, do their feelings of distress actually match what we're looking at? Mm. If a person says, I think my nose is not that bad, but I would like it improved. And if I didn't have it, Oh, it wouldn't be the end of the world, but I would like it improved and I have this option and I have the money. Why can't I do this? It's very different to a person who's not leaving the house, is not taking photos, um, does not let their partner propose to them because they don't want their engagement photos to be with that nose. Mm. Um, and is very, very distressed. Cannot have someone sitting next to them and looking at their profile. In the lecture rooms, will sit at the back so that people can see their profile. Will not smile in photos. Will Photoshop every photo. That's the level of distress that if it's not matching the actual nose that we're looking at, we have to be very concerned about. So what? So what's the recourse? I mean, like, well, what happens after that? So um, patient goes to said surgeon, surgeon refers patient to you, you identify that there's an issue that or BDD, they can't have surgery, then what happens? So I'm going to just go a step back. How amazing would it be for the doctor to recognize it and send them for that assessment first? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you can have a sixth sense in a consultation that I'm not quite sure the expectations are Realistic. what I can deliver yeah. as the surgeon or the, yes. the injector. But do you think that screening questionnaires are useful or do you think that someone with BDD will completely see through that questionnaire and lie just to get what they want? I think this is my problem with questionnaires in general. Unless you have these criteria, it's not going to actually pick anyone up. Mm. It's going to be training the staff and the doctor to be able to look out for this does not add up what i'm looking at does not match the level of distress this person is expressing yeah okay so i think questionnaires are very very misleading now also i think some people will fall into that category of having bdd and they don't have bdd if you have a very disfigured nose and you can't stop thinking about it and you do it is affecting your 
life impairing you in some way and you're spending a lot of time covering it up, that's not unrealistic. Yeah. If you had one leg shorter than the other or you had only one breast, would you not do the same thing? So just because you meet those criteria, mm. it's about it being, sadly with BDD, it needs an objective observer of being able to go, does this match or does this not match? A 15-year-old girl who's got Poland syndrome and has not developed breast on one side, how can she not be distressed? Yeah. I recently, to my own surprise, okayed a 15-year-old for a breast reduction because it was destroying her life. And she was, this was never going to get better. She's a 15-year-old with double F breasts. Mm. And she's very athletic and really quite young and is Pain not able to cope with these breasts. And yeah. the moment she's had the reduction, you have to see her posture has changed. She went to the beach for the first time in three years. You know, so we can't, we really need to assist them on a one by one basis. We can't just have this blanketed rule of you meet this criteria, you can't have surgery. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I've tried to think about this from injectables, which is what I practice. And if you try and be as explicit as have a questionnaire, it just becomes too rigid and yes. fake. And they read the questions and they're like, what? You know, it just seems to explicit that you're trying to tease out something so obvious mm -hmm. whereas if you don't ask it at all you're not maybe asking enough so so i think the consultations are very very important so i'll go back to david your question so Sorry, we're throwing you around yes. a little bit here so. so no no that's that's lovely so the doctor say the doctor has recognized that this person's goals are not realistic or their level of distress does not match what they're looking at then they will send them to see me mm. okay so in that consultation, it will go two ways. If the person is severely BDD, they won't hear a word I'm saying. So they will literally go away in most cases and find another doctor. I've had people throw chairs at me in the session. Oh I've had several patients refusing to pay for the appointment. And I've had people make complaints. I've had people go and come back and wait behind my office door to have a, another go at me. And it becomes quite abusive because they see me as blocking something that they have been hoping for and praying for for so many years. So how dare I now block them from this solution? Mm. And they're so convinced that if they have this surgery, they will stop thinking about it. They don't understand that it will actually BDD get so much worse with surgery. And I can explain that if you would like me to. Yeah, no, of course. So those people will go and find another surgeon. If they've had a good rapport with me, they will inevitably after that surgery contact me because they know somebody understands because I explained that to them. You will go, you will go and find another surgeon and this will get worse. So they will then in six months time, six weeks time, I've had, I've showed up to work and people were sitting outside of my office door going, I went to Thailand and had the surgery you told me not to have. Mm -hmm. I went to Turkey and had the surgery you told me not to have. And this is what's happened. I can't stop thinking about it. You were right. That's a really good thing in a way, because at least we can catch them. The ones that go off and have surgery and never talk to me again, well, there's nothing we can do about those ones. Then we have the ones who will agree to go into therapy as a way of blackmailing myself and the surgeon into doing surgery at a later time. Mm. I usually try to find them the best referral possible and that referral, if effective, will actually talk them out of surgery. So that's one way that we goes. There are a group of people who will go and have therapy, who need therapy, and then a year later, two years later, are ready for surgery because whatever they had an issue with does warrant 
some level of surgery. So then we will locate them for surgery. And so it goes a whole spectrum of how people react to the information. What, what does therapy involve? I don't know if you can condense that. So it's a broad question. What, what, what things might they do? Um, we sadly, there is very little evidence that short-term therapy works with BDD. So you need really, really long-term psychotherapy with BDD. Again, there isn't a lot of data available to be able to evaluate that because we're talking about years of therapy. Mm. I want you to look at it the same as an, as an eating disorder or any kind of severe mental health issue. So it takes years of therapy. Yeah. Um, but it's usually trying to really connect with the internal pain and conflict that's getting uh, focused onto a body part. Yeah. So what I'm hoping that the word that will get out there is to not just look at BDD, but look at a whole range of factors that might make someone not a suitable candidate for surgery. So I was telling David that I give this talk um, called Just Because You Can, It Doesn't Mean You Should. Mm. And I give it to both the practitioners and the clients because I think it goes both ways. Um, just because we can afford it, just because we have the autonomy to decide whether we want to have surgery or not, it doesn't mean we should. So to try to look at, really assess the person, and the doctor might not have the time, they might just get some inklings of this person needs to see a psychologist. And then the therapist, of course, will have an hour or two or three or as long as needed to try to decipher all of that. But I think it's really important as consumers of cosmetic procedures, and as practitioners to be aware of certain things that there are certain characteristics that are not going to lend themselves to satisfaction with plastic surgery. It just makes them not suitable for surgery. Mm -hmm. um, eating disorders, history of anxiety and depression. Eating disorders, this is a person who has focused on manipulating the body and has been dissatisfied and too focused to the point of hurting themselves health-wise to try to achieve that. So this is a person who's too focused on their body. So now if they're coming for a nose job or for a breast augmentation or liposuction, you have to be super aware of that. Mm. Um, eating disorders, um, have ebbs and flows. So you might go through periods when you have no symptoms, but there can be other things that can unravel it again. So it's very important to be mindful of these people. History of anxiety and depression, especially anxiety and panic attacks. This is a person who has um, focused on something that has caused them a lot of distress and has not been able to unhook from themselves from that. This person might then get very focused on recovery and what's going on during recovery. Um, any kind of childhood abuse, especially sexual abuse of any kind, is very, very important. I recently had a girl who her nose could warrant surgery, but she very quickly at the beginning of the session said, it's my dad's nose and I cannot look like him. Right. Then later on in the session, it became very obvious that she has been severely sexually, emotionally and physically abused by her dad. This is a person who's trying to remove so the psychological pain of looking like that by having surgery. So these are the things that a surgeon would not, might not have time to tap into or understand, but it became very evident very quickly. I guess people who present for a consultation, say for their nose, let's keep on talking about noses, they might not declare some of these things because they're so fixated on getting the result that they will leave out some of that detail because they may think, well, if I tell them that, then they won't do the surgery because of 
you know, what you just said. But why would you? I mean, well, why would a patient that's coming in for a rhinoplasty say, by the way, exactly. I, want the, I want this done because my dad did this to me when I was, that's like, that's very personal. So I don't know whether that's anyone right. would actually that's voluntarily right. provide that. So I think it's really important with certain things like, say, vaginoplasty mm. or labiaplasty. If you do not check sexual history, you're missing a whole, especially if it's a young woman who hasn't had children and has not, you know, if a woman has had three children and now she's trying to do it cosmetically or functionally, very different story yes. to a young girl who thinks it doesn't look right and wants it to look a particular way. You have to check sexual history. Of course, you're not going to check certain histories with rhinoplasty. But let's ask, why was that girl referred to see me? Mm -hmm. Because when she was talking about her nose, her level of distress was not matching the nose. Mm. Yeah. So there are telling signs that a very good surgeon who knows what to look for could pick up on. I'll give you a different example. Recently, a young lady um, was referred for a facelift, for a um, um, neck lift. She looked 16. Mm. She's in her um, late 30s. And, it and this is a person who was not wearing makeup, had not shaved her legs or her underarms and was dressed very plainly. Mm. So the moment she comes in and had not even groomed her hair, why does she want a neck lift when it doesn't seem to be fitting with the picture that's in front of you? Yeah. So those are the kind of things that you have to be very astute to pick up. There's something going on here like a detective that's right <laughs> i guess from a very loving place a detective is trying to find you doing something wrong a psychologist is more on your side to try to figure out what's going on and in a much more caring um, way so yes you are investigating it but you're on the same side as the client you're not on the opposite side i've touched on this in a previous podcast but when people come for a non-surgical treatment forget surgery that's even a step above because it's a permanent result but yes I think what I've found successful probably just in the last year or so is exactly what you said. I've become a psychologist with a syringe. Yes. <laughs> if, if I'm not clear on why someone is sitting on the bed, what has motivated them to come in the room, I am invariably won't deliver what they want because I haven't really treated what they're feeling and what their you know, internal desires are. So... I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think it's just something that's neglected in our industry. But I think it comes with experience and training. And I think if we train people to understand how important the psychological part is, then they might be mindful of things. And then when not sure, refer for, to an expert, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, or someone who has the time to be able to explore all, all of that. Um, again, let's not forget, a surgeon is going to offer you surgery. Mm -hmm. It's his job to offer you surgery and improve that body part. I don't know a surgeon who would look at a body part and don't think, oh, yeah, sure, I can improve that. That can be better. Unless they're really, really ethical and they go, really, this is a very good result. I'm not touching this. Mm. The risks are, will outweigh the benefits here. But so we need to, the industry is a tricky industry because it is a business and I think the more experienced a practitioner becomes, a surgeon becomes, the more they will see that if you operate on the wrong person and a person who was not suitable, it will actually cause you more dilemma yeah. and it's not worth it. So this seems to be um, an issue pro probably um, 
with inexperienced or, or surgeons that are newly graduated because I'll just put my business hat on for a second. Um, you know, you've done all this training time, you know, you've been building up to this point. You get to you get to that place, you open up your practice, I need patients. Yes. Um, so there's the commercial- And it runs on the board. Yeah. So there's the commercial pressure of having to pay bills and have a successful enterprise or business. And then also being confronted with, wow, like how do I know who's who's suitable and who's not? And it must be extremely difficult, I guess, then combined with the fact that they probably haven't had specific training in how to identify these issues. So it's a recipe for... Disaster. So this is what I think... I've had partners of plastic surgeons come and shake hands with me going ever since you've been involved with our pra- with the practice, he's sleeping much better or she's sleeping much better because the patients who are problematic and will come back dissatisfied will stand in your pavement screaming, don't go in, he's botched me, even though you haven't been botched, will get onto social media and write really bad reviews for you or actually take you to ACCC or complain to the medical board. It's taking so much of your staff's time, your time, and it really burns you out. So I think it is to the benefit of the surgeons to have someone that they work with. So at times like this, they could consult with and go, well then, and then think of it the other way. They come and see a psychologist. If I approve, if he, she, myself approves them for surgery, Ethically and legally, now they are our responsibility. If this person shouldn't have been operated on, the doctor has done his due diligence or her due diligence. So it becomes our responsibility. So we're not going to do that lightly. And we don't okay them for surgery. Again, the surgeon's hands are clean. Because I sent you to the psychologist and I'm now ethically banned by her report that says you're not suitable for surgery. So you cover it both ways. So I think it's actually very beneficial to have someone that you work with because you're really covering yourselves emotionally, financially, um, medically, ethically, mm-hmm. in every way. What do you do with those cases where people, for example, they hit a roadblock with you, they don't get what they want, they bounce around, they get another opinion and someone jumps ahead. Have you ever been involved in the situation where you then hear about the result and they come back either happy or very sad still? Like, Have you, have you sort of followed that through to the end or not really? Sadly, yes. Right. Very sadly, yes. Without obviously being um, giving anyway any uh, details, what, what broadly happened? What happened? So, for example, you will get a patient. I had a patient who was severely psychotic, had not left the house for a year, um, and clearly schizophrenic, without being treated. The parents, who themselves were quite unwell, were convinced that if he gets a nose job because he was obsessed with his nose, he will have a social life and will go to uni and leave the house. Mm. I did not okay him for surgery. I had at least four hours with the mother on the phone who would call me uh, being very, very aggressive, saying, how dare you um, discriminate against mentally ill people? Against who? (laughs) Mentally Mentally ill Ill people. Ah. (laughs) Why can normal people have surgery and mentally ill people not have surgery? And I tried to explain that he will get worse and it's not in his best interest and his schizophrenia has to be treated. So they they went on to find another doctor. And only in a case conference when his name was mentioned with the other doctor, I realized that they knew exactly what to tell the other doctor. They hid the mental illness and he operated. Mm. He has now not left the house for 18 months. Wow. Do you have any sort of network where you work with a lot of the local surgeons where you can, I mean, is it even ethically allowable to share this information to say, these are red flag patients? I've met this client. (laughs) Yeah. If he comes to you, 
uh, no, it's a breach of confidentiality. Yeah, that, yeah. But thankfully, it's happening more and more where a patient will go to one. And now I'm very open in my consultations. I will say to them, most probably if you go to another good surgeon in Sydney, you will come back here again. Because mm, <laughs> so a lot of them. But yeah. sadly, then they will go overseas, which is not the best right. outcome. Yeah. But um, very often, people don't even try to change their names and it's the same story. And I will catch them through another doctor and another doctor. Oh, wow. There's been one patient that has now been identified through four doctors. Oh, my goodness. And every time now she hears my name, she just leaves and goes to the next doctor. Oh, my God. So where does this come from? Are we born with a mental illness or are we creating it with our society? Is social media contributing or to blame or is this just being human or like? Sorry, very difficult, deep question, difficult David. question. Sorry, that's a very deep question. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm quite no, I love, I love it because <laughs> I think we need to keep asking this question. And I'll go back to myself, for example. I'm 45. <laughs> um, at a time where I was going through the most vulnerable years of my life, to see how I looked or to try to gauge if something suited me or how I looked or try to get that reassurance, which you do as a teenager, you would have to buy a roll of film. You would have to put it in a camera, ask someone to take pictures of you from different angles, then take it to get developed and wait for it to get developed. And you couldn't then zoom to see the different parts of that photo. So you saw what you saw. So what did you rely on mostly? What did I rely on mostly? Your relationships. You would actually gauge in a human relationship. You would ask your friends, your sister, your boyfriend, your classmates, and then you would have to trust their judgment of what something looked like. Then but likely you would go that would be a balanced view because you're asking several people. Several pe exactly. And they're looking at you as a whole, as a person. Then you will go out in the world, if you trusted what you, they told you to wear, it was good enough, you would trust them and risk it and go out there. And then you would gauge people's reactions. No one looked at me or someone complimented me or didn't compliment me. Now let's look at my daughter who's 12 years old. What's the first thing she would do to try to make sure if something suits her? Take a selfie. Take a selfie. <laughs> yeah. Take a selfie and analyze that selfie to the minutest details. It is spontaneous feedback. We are how we value see ourselves is very much the harshest critic most of the time. So you're now in your own head without listening to anyone's feedback. You're convinced what you're looking at is who you are and it's good or bad. It may not be the same example, but, you know, starting this podcast and having to listen to your own voice, it's embarrassing. That's terrible. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. Cringing. But, but like yeah. you say, it's not a balanced view because no, everyone hears my voice every day and no one's got a problem with my voice, but I do exactly. because, you know, it's exactly. me. It's the same thing, right? Exactly. So now, now bring social media into it mm. where a two-dimensional photo that's photoshopped, that's filtered, that has a certain number of likes from real people or not even real people <laughs> is a gauge of whether you're good enough or not. So this is what I'm scared of, that surgical and cosmetic procedures, injectables, say wrinkle treatments um, or cosmetic surgery, plastic surgery, they're portrayed as a legitimate self-management uh, practice. So you should have these things done the same way you should go and have your dental hygienist clean your teeth or have a haircut or have a facial. 
um, they're framed as aspirational. So it's in a way, a way of reclaiming your true self or being powerful and taking um, charge of your destiny. Hmm. So in, especially in the makeover shows, for example, they often show you that this person is now reclaiming this true self that's happier. And it's like they were being, it was detrimental the way they were before and now they're the best version of themselves. But just to, you know, I've got to balance this argument because this is what I practice. Yes. What I enjoy about my job, and, and you're absolutely right, you can you can get it wrong if you treat the wrong person, but... Many people come in with, you know, a, a legitimate hang up on, say, their frown lines or yes. lips are very small, whatever. And by improving that, they really do come back feeling better about themselves. And they will say, I've had compliments and I feel good and, and I'm not worrying about it anymore. And, and it seems to work. But I, I hear what you're saying. It, it's sort of portrayed as like this overly glamorized, life changing experience, which is not really what we're offering. And that's the that's the problem. And what you're saying is really beautiful. What's the difference between that and getting a really nice haircut or buying a really nice outfit? Yeah. I think there is a level of self-care. So this is what I mean about the spectrum of behavior here now. Yeah. To try to decipher what is healthy and what is starting to become unhealthy. Yeah. What is avoiding internal pain or trying to address something internally by externally modifying the body? Mm. And the focus on, and I think the shortcuts, and you will see that because the person will come back, especially in your industry, well, they will come back with that dissatisfaction or they want more and more and more. And you're starting to think, well, you're starting to look really strange. Yeah, you've got to be the gatekeeper. Get, that's right. Because what it is, is that it's undoubtedly there's something really simple about the shortcut of let's remove the wrinkles, let's get a nose job, let's get a new pair of boobs to shortcut not feeling the pain that it's causing you yeah. or what's going on for you internally. But those feelings are never going to be operated on. They're never going to be injected. They're going to still be there. And that's what we're trying to figure Completely out. Agree. To really look at and go. And for some of these people, it might be even impossible to put into words, let alone try to find solutions to because it's unconscious. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget that most of our behavior might be unconscious. On a conscious level, you think, but everyone gets breasts. Why can't I have new breasts? It's not a big deal. Everybody has it. But unconsciously, what the meaning is, is very different. It's a... Um it seems to be an issue that's permeating our culture in general. It's not just about surgery. I mean, you go to the gym and you see people that are obviously taking performance enhancing um, supplements yes. um, that may be legal or illegal um, to get a certain look. So, you know, you see it with people with, you know, bigorexia, which is, I think is the opposite of anorexia. Yes. So it's not just surgery. It's, yes. it's a cultural issue that people feel they need to, as you said, look a certain way. Um, Going back to what you said about selfies, I definitely know people who will not put a photo up unless it's been filtered. Yes. So they're presenting a version which isn't even real, let alone modified. Yes. So people are aspiring towards things that are that not even real to begin with. Yeah, it's wow. like they're living yeah. in an augmented reality. It's and I weird. love the augmented reality. It's about, It's almost like... We are in living in the world where you can get body parts. 
I can have Angelina Jolie's nose. I can have Kim Kardashian's butt. I can have Lob Lob's lips. And it's become this fragmented reality of... Frankensteins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And sadly, I love you using that word because more and more I'm coming across that word because you might be manipulating, modifying the outside and manipulating the outside. And all of a sudden it unravels these parts of the personality that quite unlikable mm-hmm. and unlivable and very, very not nice that were hidden underneath the fat and the ugly nose and the whatever it was going on. And now it has been unearthed because this person has the confidence to now be that person. It's, it, it, we need to be more mindful of the meaning of these procedures and understanding if the person is make and again let's look at age um, um i'll give an example of myself very often with patients and in talks um i come from a persian background they call this the land of plastic surgery it's very much acceptable to have plastic surgery if you have especially nose rhinoplasty if you have a bad nose it's usually indicative of being from a poor family so you can't afford surgery mm. So you turn 18, if your family is well off, or even if they can't afford it, they will borrow for their daughters and sons to have rhinoplasty because it's a sign of wealth and status. status, status. Yeah. Yeah. So I was made fun of for my nose my whole life. I always knew I will turn 18, I will have a nose job. Um, prayed for it, hoping that my parents can afford it when I turn 18. I turn 18, I do really well in my HSC, and my father offers to pay for my rhinoplasty. Couldn't be more thankful. I book it. I had wanted it my whole life. I changed my university preferences, and I can't do the surgery. Um, I wouldn't have healed on time. I didn't get out of bed for three weeks crying, thinking, how am I going to go to university with this schnoggin? I hate this nose. Um, I go to university. Um, I get a boyfriend. I get very busy with studying. And I never get a chance to do the rhinoplasty. In my late 20s, in my wedding photos, never liked the photos. Thought the nose took over the whole of the wedding album. But didn't mind. Um, Had a baby in my 30s. Again, every time I took a picture with my child, I was like, there you go. There's that nose. At 45, I thank the universe and God and wisdom and life and luck that I never did the surgery. Because at 45, I now know myself. Mm. I still don't like the nose, but I would never touch it in a million years because it's who I am. And I, I would never I would never be able to live with this touched nose that one nostril is not matching the other one, which mm. I would see because I'm very perfectionistic, even if no one else sees it. And I will develop body dysmorphia <laughs> after yeah, surgery right. for sure. And I'll be rocking in a fetal position going, please give me back my old nose. So if I had had that surgery at 18, at 45, I would have regretted it. Mm. So I think there's something about living with imperfections that you might feel differently about it. So if we are letting really young people do modify modifications to their bodies that cannot be undone. Every teenager is going to have piercings and tattoos and do things and haircuts and different hair colors to try to find their identity. But to do things that are completely permanent and cannot be undone, has there been enough thought and understanding going into that? Or are we just trying to shortcut them not feeling good about themselves, which is something that they should actually learn to work through? Mm and develop resilience with and develop self-esteem with and develop an internal with as opposed to my 15 year old um, family member who is absolutely gorgeous and there's 
absolutely nothing wrong with her body. And she 100% says, of course, I'm going to have a boob job. If I want to be a Victoria's Secret model, I do have to have bigger boobs. Mm. Wow. I think that's the influence of, you know, bombarded by social, social media, media influences and just photo after photo after photo. And, you know, even a, a normal person, inverted commas, would feel a little bit of pressure to aspire to look like something that they're not because you just see it all the time. Oh. If you are 15, if you're 25, if you're 35, if you're 45, if you're 65, and you are constantly getting these images of this perfect breast that you can have for $15,000, how would that not be appealing? Mm. Yeah. You can have it. You can have it. It's constantly this message of, you can have it. Well, why shouldn't I have it? Mm. That's the question and I guess that they will is, ask. This is happening to people in their formative years. I mean, you know, You've got toddlers now, or not toddlers, but young children now with phones and access to the internet and social media. That's right. You know, a lot happens during someone's development from a child through to an adult, you know, and I think as an adult, maybe you can be a little bit more, I don't know, uh, judicious and realistic and you, you're m more mature. But when you're young and you're getting hit with that, it's almost like, I don't even know, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's... But it's, I think the wish is the same. Mm. We are still that four-year-old inside, right. but it's that's just that we've had more experiences of knowing certain things we wanted did not bring the happiness we wanted <laughs> or imagined or fantasized about. That car, that girlfriend, that husband, that house. And over the years, we realized, no, it's the internal happiness doesn't actually depend on those external things as such. The child just hasn't got that experience and is convinced a teenager, a young as someone in their young 20s is convinced that if I have that, I will be happy. Mm. And that only comes with maturity. So we have to be very mindful. I mean, if I was a dictator and had my way, perhaps I would make the age for age of consent for plastic surgery 25. Mm. Not that you couldn't have surgery if you needed it, but that to get at the moment age of consent is 18. And if you are, if a person of under the age of 18 wants surgery, they just have to have an approval of a psychologist. That's the recommended guidelines. Mm. It would be really amazing if that was 25. So anyone under the age of 25 who wanted plastic surgery would have to have one session at least with a psychologist and think about what they're doing and whether it's in their best interest. So I guess, um, not changing topics, but I guess moving forward from, so someone is suitable for surgery, they have surgery. Um, and this is something we spoke about last week was what actually happens to the psychology of a patient post-surgery? Um, you know, there's a healing phase, people obviously, I guess, with something like a nose that is the center, like one, not focal point of someone's face. It can yes. take 18 months to Minimum. fully, fully So I'm heal. assuming that would be quite, traumatizing and and um difficult for someone even who's mentally sound yeah to go through that healing process do you what are your experiences with that so that's and why i've been an advocate to refer people before surgery because they will have first of all it's that it's not just the assessment the assessment part is very simple but to actually prepare this person for the psychological process before and after surgery then you've made you've had rapport with this person so then you can have your hands around them all the way through that healing process which you prepared and educated them about so if you do not prepare for the patient to have realistic expectations of what happens physically and psychologically during the healing process and afterwards that's when the patients will not cope with the procedure so I think that preparation is extremely important so for example at the moment I have a um, 
I have this partnership with a lot of the doctors who do rhinoplasty. The patient has to be assessed and then the person has to come from a prep session separate to the assessment closer to surgery, especially with a loved one who's going to be caring for them to do that preparation hour. Then I will be there all the way through during the 18 months. So I would wish them like the day before surgery, I'll check up on them every day. And I've got my, I'm there, I wish them like on the day of cast removal, I check up on them on the day of cast removal and I'm there all the way through that healing process. So they have someone to talk to, someone that they know would understand. That's not my mom who tells me I'm looking good and understands what I'm going through. I explain to them the obsessions that developed during the past, the three months after surgery, what happens and how to avoid avoid the pitfalls of getting obsessed with the imperfections, all of that. Say someone is going through a um, body lift. The body lift needs enormous psychological support afterwards because the imperfections are many, the healing, there's a lot of complications that can happen. The healing is very lengthy. This person has probably been overweight for a very long time. They've gone through some surgical procedure like a sleeve or a bypass, stomach bypass to try to lose the weight. So they've gone through this morphoses that the the mind has a very hard time catching up with. Mm. These people need adjustment. That 15-year-old who's had a breast reduction, she's not going to overnight be okay with wearing tighter clothes, which the mom expects, and that she's going to get up and go out with her friends. She still feels a bit strange. She has to grow into this normal body now. These are the things that I think it's really important. Preparation is key because the We know for a fact the people that do best with cosmetic surgery and procedures and plastic surgery are people who have realistic expectations. That is the biggest predictor of outcome and satisfaction afterwards. And then that preparation and then to have someone to go to if they're running into trouble afterwards. Mm. What's the... Do you have a, a protocol or a process where you answer or go through specific things when people are referred to you? Or is it very bespoke depending on... What their issues? So the psych assessment is a, it's a psych assessment I would do with any client that walks through the door. Um, with certain surgeries, there are certain things that I will always ask for. With surgical patients, I will ask certain things like, at what age did you have sex? Has anything happened to you as a child that you wish hadn't happened? That might be extra. Mm. Um, have you ever suffered from an eating disorder? Um, very specific. I think that um, Jake and I have the opposite of BDD. I think that we think we're a nine and are actually a five. Is there a term for that? <laughs> yes, narcissism. <laughs> <All right. laughs> He's knocking on my door every week. Can I have more of that? Can I have more of that? <laughs> He's giving away all your secrets. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, I was going to ask a question. So I think with surgery, most listeners could could understand you know how a psychologist would dovetail that and it it sort of makes sense that you you go through that process before you have a a permanent procedure but what about for non-surgical treatments for example injectables is the most common one most of the time people have come in with a very clear objective frown lines or whatever it is cheek enhancement you've got half an hour time slot with the injector you can be a walk-in. You, d- you hadn't even planned to do it on that day. You just walked in and you walked past the shop and thought, ah, I'm going to go and do this today because it's practical and um, I'm here. Do you think that there is a tangible way of an injector, uh, you know, doing a quick screen to, to decide whether it's appropriate to treat on the day or maybe defer or come back in a week? I know some injectors have a 
you know, I mean, they're very successful and they can probably justify it commercially, but they have a standard practice of, I will not treat you today. You have to come back in a week. Whereas most of us mere mortals will have to make a snap decision mm-hmm. whether I treat or not. I think mm-hmm. Jake's trying to get some free advice from you, Dr. Shah. Please, <laughs> make my life easier. <laughs> so I think, again, Jake, you're pointing to something that I think most practitioners really struggle with. Yeah. Who do I treat? Who do I not treat? When is it enough? When is it not enough? And I think it comes with education and pra- and, um, and time and really getting experience. Yes. You really get a sense for it. But to, I think especially with injectables, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the eye can get really used to a particular presentation. And sometimes you think, didn't the injector think they're going a little bit too far with this person and they're starting to look like a freak? And I think it's because, I think as a psychologist, I find that very fascinating. I think it's the same way our eyes, we think we have an ideal of beauty, but it's actually very... um, transient and it changes over time the same sure. way we would see uh, fashion if we all believe something was beautiful we would there would be no fashion that would keep changing season by season what we see as beautiful in one season we would kind of frown upon going how did i wear that yeah. in another season so our ideals of beauty very much change and i wonder if as injectors there's a certain aesthetic that your eyes get used to Mm. And sometimes you see with certain very popular injectors, they're creating the same face for everybody. And you can kind of go, oh, I can see that's a lob-lob face because they're very similar. So I think to check yourself and to be able to really look at someone as a blank slate of going, how can you be improved as opposed to going too far? I completely agree. And, you know, a lot of clients, that's their biggest fear. The first thing they say is, they don't tell you what they want. They tell you what they don't want mm-hmm. because they don't want to look like, you Done know, up. Yep. whoever, you know, they don't want to be one of these stereotyped people. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think it depends how the injectors trained. We call it the aesthetic eye. You sort of have to have a, like a, a sixth sense of what would work, what won't work, what fits, what doesn't, their proportions. Yes. And, and that can't just be trained. And Jake, it's I experience. think you have seen this. People who come in with photos, I want these lips. Immediately. Immediate red flag. Red flag. Yes. People who are being too perfectionistic and seem very anxious about, please don't do this and please don't do that and I want this and I don't want that and it was only 0.05 mil last time. (laughs) Okay. If they don't give you the freedom to judge what is right and they are trying to really control the outcome. agree more. Those are the people that are not going to cope because they don't have a realistic expectation. And actually they probably don't even understand what they're asking for. That's right. That's, that's the crazy that's thing. thing. That's exactly correct. Um, you know, I, I joke and I don't mean it to be facetious, but I tell people, you know, you don't go to a restaurant and tell the chef how to make your food and you don't tell the mechanic how to fix your car. You trust them. It's their profession. You go in there seeking the nice meal or the car to be fixed and you just let them do their job. Obviously, aesthetics, you have to have a discussion and mm-hmm. work out what their wants mm-hmm. and needs are. But I, I think you're absolutely right. When it becomes. Yeah, I'm so going to steal that from you now because I give a different example, <laughs> but I'm going to go with that one. See? That's a very good one because I usually say to them, um, you do not go to have heart surgery and tell the doctor where you want a stint and where to cut you and how it's going to go. You go, I'm putting myself in your expert hands to give me the best job. 
Yeah. So when a plastic surgeon is deciding, a cosmetic plastic surgeon is deciding what shape they're going to take three sizes of implants in and shapes, and they're going to decide which one suits you better, and then they make a decision on that day. You have to trust that you don't understand the anatomy. Yeah. You do not understand where the pockets are. You don't understand where the muscles are, where the nipple is sitting, what the height of your chest, your shoulders, all of that. And, and you have to asleep. trust this person. <laughs> yes, yeah. that too. You have to trust this person. Yeah. You won't believe the number of people who go, but I asked for round, and he put anatomical. Mm. I want the round ones back. What do you know about which one suits you best? Correct, yeah. So it's really very important. You don't go, oh, I'm having prostate surgery, <laughs> prostate cancer surgery, and you explain to the doctor what you want and what you don't want. But to balance that, I do like when a client comes in with some knowledge. You know, if, if they know absolutely nothing, it, it does become harder to have that conversation of, you know, meeting in the middle somewhere. But knowing too much and coming and having Googled the hell out of lip fillers. Yes. They're just, you know, their anxiety level is is up here, and 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 the expectations are through the roof, and it just becomes very very difficult. So, so I, I that brings me said. to the next point of why I agreed to do this podcast. Mm. We need to educate the consumer more, get second opinions, yep. understand what the person is doing to your body, understand the healing process, understand the uh, risks, understand what complications can happen. People often go to these procedures hoping for best and blinding themselves to the worst. No, go get a second opinion. Get a feel for the, what the person's about to do to your body. Um, I, when you, you do injectables, I've had a person who had injectables and I showed David the photo. It went in her eye. She almost became blind. Oh, yeah. And a year of completely disfigured face. Find out what the person is doing. Don't just trust. If you're not satisfied with the level of information you're going getting, go elsewhere. Yeah. Don't just look at social media and go, but these people had surgery with this doctor and it went well. Yeah. Social media is always going to be skewed. It's going to, the people who are really happy with their results are going to put their photos up. Well, <laughs> or, I, or I think really unhappy. Or really unhappy. But you miss the moderates. Yeah. I think doctors have a way of drowning those ones out. So again, I think mm. it's a biased. Well, I think it's how this podcast evolved and, and why we started doing it. I mean, you're absolutely right. We, we put our best foot forward on social media. Of course, it's advertising, it's fun, it's, you know, but it's completely filtered. And so with the podcast, we can explore these issues and, and really try and educate people in a very... Unbiased. Unbiased way. Yeah, we're not the expert, you are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we're really grateful yeah. to have people like you yeah. here. And we've got no agenda. Do you know and what I mean? And how amazing just... would it be to have more of these conversations? Yeah. I think it's about everybody being well-informed um, and really and understanding all sides of it, the physical sides of it, the psychological sides of it, and treat the whole person not just the body part in ourselves and as con treating the patients. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, one other thing I just wanted to cover quickly was um, patients that are post-surgery, mm -hmm. um, not happy. Mm -hmm. um, that can be quite traumatizing. Do you they mean might, the BDD one or yeah. just a general? Oh, just general. They might not be happy with the result. They might be, you know, and they might have genuine concern or genuine reason not to yes. be happy. They might go back and see their surgeon. Surgeon doesn't agree. Um, that can be so quite So there are a very large um, proportion of the plastic surgery patients that I see. Mm. Uh, people who have to have revision, I usually say 100% has to be referred to see a psychologist for many, many reasons. Either by some objective measure, 
the results are not okay and they have to have surgery or there's been complications that require surgery. Say with a body lift and now there's sonomas or there's issues that have to be dealt with. This person is not now has had a traumatic experience of some kind. So they actually will go into the second operation or third operation or the subsequent operations with a very different mindset. Mm. So they really need to be looked after. Um, you, I get a lot of, there's a doctor that if anyone comes for revision, say they've had a um, breast augmentation that's gone very badly and they need revision now with another doctor, will always send them for assessment. And to see me for that one session. They're not mostly assessment because they do have to have that second surgery, but they're usually to try to really prepare them for what could go wrong now to have them make sure they have realistic expectations and deal with their the pain and suffering that they've been through and really be there for them. They really require a lot of care. So yes, a large proportion of my clients would be people who ha are having revision or subsequent surgeries. Because that could be quite traumatizing, I guess. It might have been you should begin with, but now there is. Exactly. And they trusted someone. Mm. They usually a lot of shame and self-blame that I didn't do my due diligence or I trusted this person. So they actually... Um, have a lot of feelings about proceeding. So they become very particular with the second surgeon. They become very demanding and very scared and mm. very anxious. So there's a lot that has to be dealt with. And that would be very scary for the subsequent surgeon. surgeon. They've got a lot of pressure on them. They're yeah. trying to fix something that arguably, um, you know, had an issue. Now secondary surgery is harder, right. it's more complications. I'm assuming it's going to be more expensive. Much more expensive, much more complicated. Yeah. The risks and complications go through the roof. And one of the surgeons says there should actually be a criteria, like a, a diagnostic criteria for revision surgery, because he goes, they actually develop their own symptoms, mm. psychological symptoms that are completely as a result of the first surgery. Mm. So, and I, and, I, and I do not disagree with that at all. To try and summarize this amazing talk, what changes do you think uh, you would recommend for new surgeons or even existing surgeons to, I guess, modify their practice or, or just you know improve the industry as a whole? So last year in 2000, sorry, end of 2017, um, the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons asked me to do speak at a workshop for um, uh, surgeons who were graduating. So they were going into private practice. Um, the response was really overwhelming. It was the first talk I was giving to a um, large audience of surgeons. The people who had were talking themselves in the workshop with me, who were already practicing, came up to me and said, why didn't someone give me this talk when I was graduating? Mm -hmm. So I think education and people are really open to that. Um, I very much think educating consumers with unbiased information, which is not available at the moment. If you are researching something, you would have to go to that doctor's website and whatever the testimonials are there, or you will look at, you know, the reviews. Unbiased information is really important. Get second opinions. And I think as psychologists, we need much more psychologists on board. We need much more research done. One of my biggest problems is that I come from a research background and there isn't numbers and research, reliable research to look at because all the patients are going through privately there is no public hospitals or universities to be able to get access to data yeah. so i would love the opportunity to do more research but it will mean that the doctors will have to be amenable for someone to access their mm -hmm. information and it's their business and it's their private practice so it's not likely well, so i think we need much more research there's a lot of questions that you've asked that i think we don't have the answers to yeah well i mean for anyone listening how would they 
potentially get in touch with you to to explore those things or set up a study do, do you have a, a dedicated website or are you on instagram or linkedin or any of that i'm not on any social media but i am on linkedin okay and i could be contacted via that linkedin i'm also very happy for people to email me okay. um so you can make my email address available which is s.miriskandari m-i-r-e-s-k-a-n-d-a-r-i at optusnet.com.au. I would be delighted to talk to other psychologists. I'd be delighted to go to doctors. Um, I often go, travel to the doctors who would like to work with a psychologist and um, do a workshop for all their staff out of my own time to inform them on how to do run an ethical good practice um, and what to look out for with their patients. And I'm more than happy to supervise other psychologists to bring them up to scratch to do this because at the moment I don't have anyone that I can refer to very readily. I don't know who else does this. So I'm a huge advocate of more people doing this. So That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah, so much information. I mean, my head's still, my head's spinning from, I'll probably have to go back and listen to this a few times just to sort of digest everything, but so much great yes. information there. And I think these conversations are really important. You know, it's not all about glam of the industry and everything, you know, being amazing. It's about making sure that we're doing things ethically, that patients and doctors, you know, have recourse when things go wrong or how to identify problems before they become problems. So I really appreciate, well, Jake and I really appreciate you coming and having a chat with us. And I think it's these podcasts and it's these kind of movements and interests that it's got to force us to do things better. I'm very disappointed with how we practice um, cosmetically and surgically in Australia. I think we need to do things better. I think we need to be, we have very, very good surgeons. We just need to make our practice better. We'll start a revolution. Yeah, well, every, what was they say? Every journey starts with the first step, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a very loud step, so. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have you on again to explore a thousand other yeah, issues. So absolutely. I would be more than happy to. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.